J Files on Double J. She's the classically trained Russian pianist who grew up on a mix of classical music and rock staples. A move to New York without a lick of English under her belt not only took her out of the Soviet Union, but into a colourful world of hip-hop, punk and folk. This melting pot eventually inspired her own original songwriting and with that, an indie pop icon was born. I'm Gemma Pike, and this is the J Files podcast. Today, we're travelling back to 1980s Russia during the Soviet Union to a time when popular music was highly sought after but very hard to come by. A young girl is introduced to the Beatles and Moody Blues via bootleg cassette tapes. She can't understand the words, but she is captivated by the music. That young girl was Regina Spector, who would go on to become one of the world's most unique singer-songwriters. But how do you get from poring over dodgy underground tape recordings to working with some of the most celebrated record producers? I thought I'd get Regina on the phone to fill us in, and I asked her to take us right back to the beginning, to her introduction to music and the sounds that she gravitated towards. My introduction to music, really, most of it came through classical music. That was the first music I was exposed to um, at home. And, well, that and also um, these underground recordings of of the Beatles and Moody Blues and kind of cassette tapes that my dad was really a part of the Soviet sort of underground music seeking out <laughs> world so we had a lot of that and um and mostly that and then just some of the bard soviet like singer songwriter bard musicians that were uh, people that were just um a lot of it was not official recordings they were tapes of house concerts and things that sort of circulated um just through from from person to person um kind of like an indie channel, another indie channel of music in the country. That sounds quite rebellious. It's exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I didn't realize it was rebellious because I was just um, I was just benefiting from all the rebelliousness of my parents. <laughs> but but uh, but it was just it was beautiful because um, it was all really different. The everything in English I couldn't understand. So I just loved it for the sound of it and the vibe of it. Um, the classical music I just loved. It was, it, it was just instantly felt like, I don't know, like my life depended on it. It, it just was everything to me. And then the, the bards, even though I'm sure at, as a child, a lot of it went right over my head. It was very poetic and very urgent, and um, I sort of just tried to peer through the fog of it to grasp it, you know. A lot of it was really funny and sarcastic. It just, it was great. So you just said your life depended on it. Would it be fair to say that music chose you rather than you choosing music? Um, 
I guess that's pretty fair to say. Um, yeah, it felt, it just felt like as soon as I heard it, it, it just, it just, um, oh, I just wanted to be hearing it all the time. I just wanted to be in it, you know, surrounded by it. It was just such a, just such a force, you know, mm. and uh, really felt like a very benevolent force. So when did you actually get into uh, creating and playing your own music? Uh, it took me a really long time to sort of um, realize that I could go off the page, you know, because I loved playing classical music so much. And I had a really wonderful teacher for my first um, two years of learning piano in, in uh, Soviet Russia and then when I got to the Bronx, to New York, I had the most amazing teacher that taught me until I was 17, Sonia Vargas. And um, and she is just, I, I didn't, you know, there was so much to learn with from other people that it didn't really, it didn't really seem like to make that much sense for me to try and do stuff of my own. But Kind of around the age of 15, I think I started messing about a little bit and sort of singing and making up songs. And then a little bit more when I was 16, that's sort of when I was encouraged for the first time. Um, and then and then by 17, I was already trying to write, you know, 16, 17, I was starting to write some pretty terrible songs, <laughs> trying really hard, you know, to just write a lot and get better at it, you know. I'm sure that they weren't terrible by any means, Regina. Um, you're talking about New York. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they were terrible, <laughs> but but that's okay. You know, they kind of. I think they kind of have to be, and um, you know, I think about that all the time. That there's something there's something really nice about being able to start and do something really pretty poorly, you know, but within the safety of your own world, you know. Mm. You're talking about the Bronx, that amazing uh, teacher you had, Sonia. This is New York. New York in the early noughties, what sort of a scene was it like there and how did you find that you were fitting in in the landscape there? You know, I mean... So I got to New York, I got to the Bronx in 1989, and then I met my teacher in 1990. And it was, it's hard to know what it actually was versus what it was to me. For, for me, it was, um, I, it took me a while just to even learn English and start to kind of figure out <laughs> what was going on. I wasn't really, um, I was learning a lot about um, being Jewish. I was going to um, a school and learning and learning Hebrew and English at the same time and um, sort of learning the history of my people and all these things. And I was really just in a, in a bubble. My brother was born, you know, so I was sort of just, in a little bit of an outsider bubble, um, I would I would interact in some ways, but I was just a little kid and I was just trying to 
sort of, <laughs> I was just trying to keep up with it all, you know? Um, so it's, it's really hard to know what, what actually was going on. Like we didn't have, we didn't have cable. It's, I think that I, I just had a very different experience than a lot of people my age. Um, I didn't grow up, you know, watching MTV and buying records and knowing what was going on sort of in the culture and mass. I didn't go to the movies, you know, I sort of, I sort of just watched a lot of PBS and a lot of like, you know, great performances and of on, on sort of American public broadcasting television, a lot of national public radio, a lot of classical music, just sort of in that world, you know. The PBS is great because it opens you up to a whole nother side of, you know, they're so eclectic. So I think that you would have got a lot of, yeah, great richness out of that. Um, you released your debut album, Eleven Eleven in 2001. How did your first record come about? I don't know. I mean, the, the thing about that record is a lot of it actually was, I think about half of it was recorded maybe even before the year 2000. Um, because then I went away for a semester to London and then I finished it after I came back. So it was my first ever record. I made it in, in uni and, um, everything was live, you know, everything was kind of, um, there, I think, I don't know. I don't know if there were any overdubs, maybe a little bit, but it just seemed like, it was just sort of captured performances as best as we could. And we used our um, university studio. And it was, it was um, Richie Castellano, who was a really good student, <laughs> as opposed to me, who was not a very good student. He really knew about studios, so he recorded it. <laughs> and, um, and then Chris Kuffner was a bassist who had just transferred to the school and he played upright bass. And I was playing some shows on campus already and he sort of came up to me and was like, I'm going to play with you no matter what. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to start writing some parts for upright bass, you know? So, so a lot of that whole record was um, very influenced by a kind of, I don't know, belated discovery of jazz and blues. Now let's jump forward to 2006 now and to the release of Begin to Hope because this was the big break for you, especially here in Australia, when lots of fans started discovering your music for the first time. Can you take us back to that album? Yeah, that was the first ever tour that I actually came to Australia. It was on Begin to Hope and 
if I remember correctly, I just injured myself really badly, actually getting into a cab right before coming on tour. So I had to do the entire tour with a walking stick and rolling through airports in a wheelchair. (laughs) That was pretty intense. Okay. I just want to pause this interview for a second because that tour that Regina referred to was her first visit to Australia in 2007. And even though she needed a walking stick, she still managed to drop by the ABC and record something incredibly special. Like a Version is a long-running segment on Triple J where artists come into the studio to play one of their own songs and a cover. Regina Spector sent us three requests – a grand piano, a room big enough to put it in, and a first-class sound engineer. We managed to deliver all three, and the result was this incredible cover of John Lennon's Real Love. Seems that all they really were doing was waiting for love. No need to be alone. No need to be It was so popular, fans were requesting it for months. People even walked down the aisle to it and became the first ever Like A Version cover to be voted into the Hottest 100, coming in at number 29. Pretty special, huh? All right, back to my chat with Regina. We were talking about her fourth album, Begin To Hope. That record was the first record I ever got to really have time in the studio. That was the first record I recorded after getting signed to Sire Warners. So it was like the big chance to experiment, to have time in the studio. I think the longest up till then I had was like, I think we'd spent three three weeks or three and a half weeks on Soviet Kitsch and all the other records were even shorter. So that was, um, that was with David Kahn, who's wonderful. And we were, I just, you know, I walked to the studio every day down to the, to the meatpacking district. And it just, we just experimented like crazy with everything. Loaders in my eyes, wake up in the hotel room. my first chance to play with synthesizers and drum machines and all kinds of things that people had been playing with for years but I was coming from everything live and everything on the piano and everything organic so that was really fun to sort of go the other way and experiment with with uh, sounds like that plus um, because I play a keyboard instrument um, if you play Basically, um, if you can play a keyboard, you can play anything because there there are these incredible samples. So you could be, you know, you could be playing um, the Bolshoi strings, uh, or, you know, if you wanted to sampled and you could be picking very specifically, oh, I want an up bow on this and then I want, 
you know, and you could pick crescendos and diminuendos and just really have a lot of control, which um, as a recovering control freak, I am, I was very happy about. So that was really fun to just get to really, um, really play around with all of that. Regina, you released that album in 2006 and it was three years until your next album, Far, in 2009. What happened between those two albums? Well, um, I toured a tremendous amount. That was sort of, I played a lot, a lot of festivals and shows and went to many new places in the world, including Australia. (laughs) And... Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it was just a very big, big time in my life. Um, and it was, it was really exciting to get to then make another record because I sort of had been touring so much that I was already pining for that experience. I didn't plan to tour that long, but it's kind of, on the one hand, it's really wonderful when the record is doing well because you're very excited and your music is getting out there. But, um, you know, the tour keeps going and going and going because you're getting invited to new places. And by the time you're done there, you're being invited to the places that it's been a minute since you've been there. So you could just go round and around and around. <laughs> and... um and I was really ready to just experiment and sort of get into the studio again and um, record because it just it just uses this whole other part of um, a whole other part of yourself to record than shows. And both are wonderful, but when you're not doing the one, you start to miss you start to miss it. At that point, um, with Far, I realized that I wasn't going to be like the Beatles and make a record every half a year. So I really wanted to use it as a learning experience, you know. Um, So I thought that maybe I should work with a few different producers because that way I would have a kind of a compressed experience that I had with, with David where um, you really kind of learn from from the way that the person hears, from their experience, and from working together, you build this dynamic. And I thought, well, I could just make a record with a few different producers, and that way, you know, over the span of a few songs, I'll learn from them. So that was the first record where I just was, um, I treated it almost like a master class with all these wonderful producers. So I worked with a whole lot. I worked with um, with Mike Elizondo. That's when I met him. I worked with um, Jeff Lynn, who is um, a legendary, and he's um, you know he's ELO and himself and and an incredible, incredible producer and person and musician. Blue lips, blue veins, blue 
far away. Blue lips, blue veins, blue the color of our planet from far, far away. I worked with Jackknife Lee, who's wonderful. I flew to London to work with him. I was super jet lagged that entire time. <laughs> I realized that maybe switching countries is not the easiest while making a record. Um, <laughs> it was like a lesson I had to learn. God could be funny When told to give you money If you just pray the right way When presented like a genie With this magic like Houdini Or grand swishes like Jiminy Cricket And Santa Claus God could be so hilarious And then I worked with, with David again on a couple of songs. Human, human of the year and you Human, human of the year and you So that was really cool as far as just experimenting with sort of many different people. You mentioned that one of the producers you worked with on Far was Mike Elizondo, who you then worked with on the next album, What We Saw from the Cheap Seats. Mike and I, we worked um, on a few songs for Far. It just sort of felt like a beginning of something and we didn't get to really finish. So we wanted to work, continue working together. So, so we continued with Cheap Seats. And then we're here, <laughs> Remember Us to Life, which is the very new record. And I did that with Leo Abrams, who is truly a really remarkable, wonderful young man from England. And um, he's, yeah, so we worked together on that in Los Angeles, actually. We met on neutral ground, <laughs> not New York, not London, but in L.A., for some reason, and it was just a wonderful experience making this record. I remembered you older and taller, but you're younger and smaller. So who's gonna call her and say that you're back again? I'm Gemma Pike. This is the J Files podcast, and it's fair to say that Regina is a bit of a favourite here in Australia. Her songs have frequently made the Hottest 100. And for those of you listening overseas, that's a huge national music poll run by Triple J every year and literally millions of Aussies vote for their favourite songs. Before I go, I thought it'd be cool to throw it over to you and ask for your favourite Regina Spector songs. Hi, my name's Heather and I'm from East Gippsland. Better by Regina. It's the first song I heard by her and I loved it from the start. It makes me so happy and it's on my road trip playlist. It's always on full four and it makes me smile. If I kiss you, and uh, the Regina Spector song that I would love to hear is on the radio. Um, it's a little bit quirky, it's fun and that little dash of whimsical um, that Regina sort of portrays. On the radio We heard November rain That solo's real long But it's a pretty sound 
Hi, I'm Jesse from Mansfield. Um, I've been into Regina Specs for a long time. Wife and I saw her about 14 years ago on our one year anniversary, and we walked down the aisle after getting married to her. So, the song I would love to hear is That Time. It's a cool little short beat. Um, lovely song, then it goes a little weird at the end. from Launceston, I think Regina is absolutely beautiful. I just love her. I, I love like um especially the John Lennon um cover. I, yeah, I don't know, I just I just love her and her voice is just unique and it's lovely. Hey, this is Deborah from Sydney, and I'd like to request the Regina Spector song, The Calculation. Uh, it's just such a cool song. The lyrics are amazing, and she's incredible. This is uh, Bryce from Dumbarton. A couple years ago, she um, decided to do a cover and she was asked to do a cover by Peter Gabriel's song that was quite big in the 90s, but not that big that you would know it. The song is called Blood of Eden and she um, gave her version for him to do like a covers album where he asked people that he respected, like Feist, um, David Byrne from Talking Heads, Bonnever. They, they all appear on this album called And I'll Scratch Yours, which is them doing Peter Gabriel covers. So if you've never heard this song before, or if you have, revisit it, because it's an amazing song. In a blood Hi, this is Andrew from Brisbane. The song I really want to hear is Eat. I really love this song. I feel it's got a really grand element to it, as long, along with being really sweet at the same time. So I really love this song, always have. It was so easy. The J-Files.